Welcome to the HR Futures Podcast, brought to you by Expedite HR, the organisation behind Working Futures, the event for HR directors, and the new mobile application, Circal, the only app dedicated to developing and improving the HR profession. This podcast is also brought to you in association with Zealous, the market-leading provider of payroll, HR, and managed services. I'm Kevin Green, and I'm your host for today. And with me is Julie Welch, the Chief People Officer for Carey's, which is a big civil engineering company. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about the job you're currently doing? Sure. Um, I joined Carey's two months ago. Um, My role title is Chief People Officer. And Carey's is a great family-owned civil engineering and construction business. And... It has about four and a half thousand people delivering some really exciting projects up and down the country. So tell us sort of what projects, what do they, if I was driving past the site, what would I see Carey's people doing? So you'd find us at airports, you'd find us um, in Marble Arch, you'd find us on the American Embassy. We'll be going below ground and putting in some really important infrastructure and building upwards um, for main clients that are delivering, you know, really exciting environments for the future work okay so you, do you do the design of buildings or is it more about you're the infrastructure guys you're the ones that come in and put the foundations i mean you know i don't know anything about building but you're the people that put the foundations in and the core uh, stuff that then gets built on is that right it's absolutely about design. We've got some fantastic ability to do 4D, um, exciting, um, innovative um, uh, modelling. Um, and that's a huge part of what we offer um, the client in how they can shape that building for the future. But yes, we will be underpinning um, uh, and below ground. Okay, so the business employs 4,000 people. What type of role? So what, what are people doing on a day-to-day basis within the business? So we'll have quantity surveyors, we'll have design and construction engineers and directors, um, and we'll have a huge workforce actually working on the ground. So, you know, bricklayers, groundwork technicians, plasterers, all sorts. And a lot of that's down through a supply chain. So some of those people actually aren't employed by you because you employ contractors to do some of that sort of activity absolutely correct okay so you've got an idea about uh the business and you've been there a couple of months do you want to tell us a bit about i'm always interested how people got into hr in the first place so i can see what you studied at university and i don't know if you made a conscious choice that you wanted to do hr so tell us a bit about that and then we'll talk about other roles in your your career I, um, you mentioned what I studied at university, so just to share that with people, it was English and uh, social anthropology. So um, I guess you could say my passions were around the areas of storytelling and the study of people in groups. So what? what so when you was, uh, I don't know, doing your A-levels or whatever, what, when you were thinking about university and degrees, why social anthropology? What, uh, what uh, 16, 17, 18 was you thinking about? Uh, so it's um, I'm really curious about the brain um, and how people make decisions, but in a group setting. So not the psychology side of it, but the anthropology side, which is about the dynamics, the emotional intelligence between people, the power plays that go on, whether it be within a family or within you know a huge organisation employing thousands of people. Okay, so you did that at, at university, and that most probably pricked your your interest or your curiosity. Then you went and did, did a bit of travelling. And, and when was it you thought, I know HR's most probably the, the place that I want to spend my time when I go to work? Um, I found that through doing some work experience in a big pharmaceutical company and I was working for the HR director. So that's where I thought this is where my heart lays. Okay. And then, so how did you get into it? What did you do? So you did your traveling and then you just, what, applied for some graduate roles or? I applied for graduate roles and direct entry roles and um, Sainsbury's was the one that I thought had a fantastic, you know, heritage, um, a set of values um, and really matched the variety that I was looking for in the start of my career. So, and you were there for quite a long time. You were there for about 14 years, I think. So, so that's... So quite often people go in for their first job and do a two, three, four years and then move on. Why did you stay so long at Sainsbury's? 
Um, there was a great ability to do different roles every two to three years, um, and that's exactly what I did. So I started out in retail, um, doing generalist roles in store. I moved into project roles, doing resourcing um, and looking after our partnership with the Prince's Trust. Oh, nice. um, I ended up doing um, an employment brand manager job when people were still just getting to grips with Crumb, what so really you're an EVPer. Any employment brand was all about. And um, and I worked in supply chain, which was, you know, very heavily unionized and just trying to get itself geared up to 24 over 7 working. So unions, uh, part time working and then a head office sort of corporate job. So, you know, really varied. So what was the last sort of role you did at Sainsbury's? What was it, the... it was the employment brand. The employment manager. of the EVP stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, you obviously haven't been there 14 years. Well, you know, you most probably thinking, well, should I stay here all my career? Or I can work my way up, continue to work. But you obviously decided to go elsewhere. Why was that? Uh, I really was fascinated about how I'd learned different cultures. What I'd loved about moving um, in Sainsbury's is how the different leadership, you know, could really give a different feel to the different um, parts of the business. Um, so having been in head office for a couple of years, I've seen some exciting um, things with a change of chief exec that was happening there at the time. I, that gave me a flavour for, um, you know, trying different organisations. Um, and that's how I thought I would also escalate my career in getting, you know, more senior positions. I mean, it's an interesting question. I suspect there's going to be lots of young HR people listening to this. And, you know, can you these days pursue your career in one organisation or just two organisations? What's your view on that? I think that if you know absolutely what drives your own passion and the area of HR that really fascinates you, find out about that, find out what gives you energy from the work that you can do, um, build a brilliant internal and external um, network and keep seeking different chances to try different things. It might be projects and working cross-functionally within the same organisation, but ultimately, I do think more people will probably move a bit quicker than I did in the early part of my career. I've made up for it a bit since. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you obviously had a good early part of your career, learned a lot of Sainsbury's, lots of different roles. And then you um, went on to InBev, which is a, a brewer. So tell us about why them and, and just a little bit about what you did there. So the fascination for me with um, InBev or Anheuser-Busch InBev, yes. as it is now, of course, is all about their brand passion. So, you know, that, that consumer, that direct marketing of a product that they were passionate about. And um, let's face it, beer was and is um, still fun. Um, and it really represented a global organisation. Um, and I was interested in learning more international dynamics. So the, the, the bit that attracted you was international and the brand. So yeah. brand experience, developing a brand, taking it to market, building relationships with consumers. And then the whole bit about the international operating and delivering globally. Absolutely. And what role did you go in to do? Um, so I went in to be um, an operations uh, HR director for UK and Ireland, and then I became the people director for UK and Ireland. So how big was that? How big a role was that? So there was about three and a half thousand people in the UK and Ireland, um, three huge breweries in the yeah. UK and Ireland. Um, but uh, being part of a team that was... Um, Western European based. So a lot of travel to um, the wonderful town of Leuven in Belgium um, and meeting up with different HR representatives from, you know, emerging economies. Yeah. Um, and also I was involved in training up quite a few of the staff for the shared service centres that they were setting up in countries like Budapest and Hungary at yeah. the time. So um, very varied. Okay, and then you and then you joined the madness of Normal for a good three or four years, uh, and then Wing Canton, and then Bunzel. Yes. So just tell us a little bit about because um, obviously a, a shift towards logistics from where he was uh, in Bev uh, with Normal and then Wing Canton and Bunzel. Sort of some of that still, yep. yeah. He's a sort of a logistics business. So tell us about those three roles and, and and just the differences perhaps because again culture is most probably quite different management styles varied I'm sure um, there was a huge change of management style from Anheuser Busch uh, InBev to um, to Royal Mail um, but I joined Royal Mail to be part of a really exciting transformation journey 
Um, so here was an iconic, many hundreds of years old uh, British institution and it had great and still does have really great people but it was struggling with the size that it was and modernization. Um, and what does that mean exactly? Well, adapting to consumer and the business yeah, demands absolutely. that were being placed on it, um, massive hours of work changes. So uh, uh, it was a huge conversation with a workforce. Um, you know, I, I think um, 2000 delivery offices, you know, this yeah. is a lot of people to get round and really get buy into the journey that needed to be undertaken to uh, make sure it was a, a, a viable long-term commercial opera operation for the future generations. And the good news is, is you were clearly there pre-privatisation, but you know it was a business that was losing huge amounts of money and ended up being sold for 3.3 billion. So you know there was a success story in there, wasn't there? Absolutely, there was. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then, and then Wincanton. Why Wincanton? So, so I'd learned I'd learned a lot about transformation during my time at Royal Mail, and here was a logistics business um, that had um, uh, over ninety years of successful trading, but during um, the early nineties had overextended itself by buying into Europe, and it didn't have the scale to continue in that vein. Right. So I arrived as part of a, a transformation team that needed to um, sell off its operations in Europe, okay. concentrate on its core, and um, uh, really reduce the debt that it had acquired over the preceding years. Yeah. So that was a really exciting um, time where, again, um, you know, uh, get a great team a around me um, to deliver all of that change that was required. Okay, and then Bunzel. So you spent a bit longer at Wincanton. So you was there what six years? Yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, it's always um, a, a wonderful um, opportunity when you're there with a new incoming chief executive. So um, that was a really exciting time for me. You know, um, when you pass from one leadership to another, um, and um, making sure that the business still has its real heart of its business strategy and its values, but that adapting, you know, to um, how it needs to as it evolves with a new leader. Okay. Um, and so um, after six years there, and the second uh, uh, chief executive. I learned an awful lot um, and uh, really felt ready for a larger role and uh, international calling sort of came again. So that was the reason for Bunzel, was it? Because yes. Bunzel's FTSE 50, it's huge business, isn't it? But it's also one business that I don't know particularly well and I think many people do. So you know, just tell us a bit about the size and scale of that organisation. Yeah, so um, uh, Bunzel is a nine um, billion turnover organisation globally in um, 30 odd countries. Um, and it's a consolidation and, and delivery um, offering. So it has some big blue chip um, customers and it will um, deliver a one stop solution um, of delivery needs into retailers, healthcare providers. Um, so what does that mean? So you explained it to me once, I can't remember who the customer was, but you take all the, the packaging to every retail outlet or something, I can't remember what it was. but Yeah, so if you think about a, a coffee store or a coffee yeah. chain or a retail group or a hotel or hospital, everything that they need for the on for delivering their business in that so location in hospital, it's rubber gloves and absolutely hard hats and construction sites um you know little bottles of shampoo for hotels till rolls for retailers um and you know trays for serving and products. it was also you worked up the supply chain so you didn't just actually do the delivery bit but it was about the sort of procurement of that and yeah working with a, a shanghai sourcing office um a very big sustainability agenda uh, making sure that you know there was a constant um, refresh of uh, you know alternative products that could be offered that were sustained um, and were um, recyclable, so all of that. Right, so we're nearly up to date. So there for two and a half years, and now obviously uh, at Carey's. So why change again? So now this is you've gone. FTSE 50, 9 billion, huge global. You've now gone sort of engineering, privately owned, big but smaller than certainly Bunzel. So why make that career step? 
Um, Bunzel was a very decentralised organisation and um, uh, you learn about the things that really give you energy and drive your passions and for me that's about leading um, and coaching an HR team and um, there was less opportunity to do that in Bunzel and so when an opportunity to work in a different kind of um, way through a privately owned organisation um, and that was growing. I felt that was a really nice um, opportunity to drive and educate a family-owned business, passing from first generation onto second generations and for all the successive generations. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll come back to that family bit because that, I mean, I think that is interesting from an HR perspective where you've got you know, that sort of family culture and again, it's, you know, you can often take longer term decisions mm -hmm. and weather storms in a slightly different way so we're, so uh, you know let's be honest an amazing career julie you've um, from where you started to where you've ended up i think it, it it's it's hugely commendable and, and and you've done great stuff so why don't you tell us about things that you're proud of you know and you look back on your career there's normally one or two things that you think yeah. you know that's what like yeah that's what lights my fire that's what i'm passionate about and i love making a difference by doing what? So what is it that lights your fire? The, the thing I'm proudest about is the transformation that we achieved as a team within Wincanton. Um, uh, the share price had really dropped to uh, an all-time low. Um, so how much was the share price? It was about 36 pence. Okay. Um, and so it must have been a takeover target, presumably. It must have been quite vulnerable. Um, there was talk that possibly that, but it also um, had the um, uh, big pension deficit. Okay. So, you know, that is something that, put people that off. <laughs> um, uh, was also being addressed through part of the transformation. Yeah. And it's in a, um, a much healthier place now. Um, so it's about transformation through um, the, the, the team. Um, so it was working very closely so on the us, board. Okay, so tell us a bit about that. Because one of the things about, you know, logistics businesses is, you know, quite often there's an obsession with movement of vehicles and operational management and stuff. And there's an asset base in there. And people, I suspect, aren't quite... Well, I'm obviously, we know from Royal Mail, but they're not that high in the strategic mix. So when you say we're doing a transformation and driving it through people, what sort of things did you do in that transformation? So what was the activity that HR did that you think that was that made a real difference? So um, it's a, um, a company that partners with um, uh, um, lots of blue chip organisations who struggle with their own particular problems yeah. in their business. And often you'll find that the supply chain part of a business is not always the primary focus um, for a particular retailer. Um, so um, what we were able to do is really share our expertise in that area. We would often partner with them and put somebody within their premises and really get to the heart of what it is that drives their economic engine. And then from that transfer, a lot of the knowledge that we had about operational efficiencies, about different collaborations. So we could be like um, a, a third party in the middle, gluing perhaps them together okay. with another organization that um, maybe um, had fleet that it was utilizing yeah. in a different way. So we could bring together real efficiencies. So I suppose the, the, the value add to the client was... Uh, your knowledge about how you can do it, uh, different modeling techniques, utilization, optimization, all of that stuff. And, and, and was it about, you know, so you said you put people on site. So was that the development, the bit that made the breakthrough, that made the change, which we put people on the sites to work with the big retailers to really understand what they were currently doing and then help them think about what they do next or how they do it more efficiently? I think that was one of the things. Um, we were also working um, there on a innovation um, train where there was an innovation lab uh, being created so that, you know, new ideas about how to do things differently. Everyone in distribution or logistics, transportation talks about um, driverless vehicles as being the thing for yeah, the future. Yeah, yeah. But there are many, many, many other um, uh um, efficiencies um, in processes and this innovation lab would bring people together from different industries and share ideas um, and there is a driver shortage out there of course as well in yeah, terms yeah. of the whole I remember that well as well from the time at RAC um, so thinking about how you can have 
um, uh, talent entry pipelines, how you can train maybe people, um, cross-skill them from warehouses into driving to make sure that there is, you know, new talent coming through. I think it's the average age of a driver is about yeah, in their 50s. 50s yeah, because I mean, and that was one of the things. It isn't just we've got shortage now, but we're going to have a shortage yeah. over the next 10, 15 years as people retire. And there's also this thing about trying to get women into driving. I can remember having a conversation about that. And I think we did it when you were at Wing Canton, which was this whole thing about why do women not want to drive trucks and a lot of it was to do with toilets and stuff wasn't it well i think uh, i i think um uh, you know women will often like to um in a workforce um, this is a generalization but you know be part of a group you know and uh, driving is a more solo um yeah. uh, choice so it is about um how you can build you know a cohort of people that feel really part of a team and working on some of those dynamics was you successful, do you think, at preparing and tackling the skill shortage and finding ways to train people and build the talent pipelines and bring women in? Because it's, I think everyone's struggling with that, even even as we speak today. I think for sure it's a, a, a five to eight year window of, of solving that. Um, it's continuing, um, but when it, it's not where it needs to be okay. quite yet. And the other thing I know that you're passionate about, and I'm sure is something else that sort of has um, been part of your career, is you know the coaching and bringing on a talent yes. within HR. Because yeah. I mean, you, you're well renowned for being a a really good boss and someone that likes to help people grow and develop. So tell us a bit about you know I don't know how you do that, how you find talent, how you grow people, how you develop them. Um, what I find fascinating is really trying to work out um, where people do want to be in their career and matching them to what drives their energy and their passion. So I am very proud of the fact that, you know, several people that have worked for me um, previously are now HR directors and leaders in very different organisations and I still keep in contact with them. So I, I think I am, uh, you know... Uh, a very collaborative by nature and I like bringing people together um, so there's several people now um, that I won't embarrass by uh, naming but that are uh, HR mm. directors in healthcare or in energy sectors um, and um, what I get from that is the coaching side of it I guess at the heart of me there's a bit of a frustrated netball player when I finally had to hang up the trainers and the whistle from several years ago but that coaching and a team is you know part of my psyche and uh, I enjoy the opportunity to do that. Okay so tell us about obviously uh, Carey so you've joined them you're two months in so you're most probably still trying to understand the landscape the culture how things get done what's great about the organization what you're not too sure about what do you think the big challenges are for you in the next few years as you start to think about their people agenda? Well, if we start with the sector um, uh, initially, the, the sector, like any sector, has a particular um, uh, group of people that it finds quite difficult to attract and retain. So engineers um, yeah. in the construction industry are a sought-after commodity. But all right the way down, all the way through the trades. Yes. I mean, construction yeah. has got shortages in numbers of, yeah. you know, lots and lots of areas, hasn't it? Yeah, so the trade, you know, the carpentry and all of those trades as well. So it's about making sure that we're working with education establishments and schools and universities and the MVQ providers so that there is a real academy of these skills okay. um, being provided for. Um, we do rely on EU um, nationals as well to undertake some of the tasks where there might be yeah. a particular shortage. So um, uh, that's going to be very important to work at, that that can continue okay. to be well. as simple as possible. Uh, nobody's got a crystal ball there, um, uh, but uh, that's really important. Um, so the, the sector... Um, uh, um, you know, has some huge opportunities in terms of infrastructure, big infrastructure projects yeah. um, over the next 10 years um, and providing, you know, um, uh, huge opportunities to also work collaboratively as well with its um, uh, primary customers. Mm. Um, and then when I think about Carey's in particular, it's gone through a big growth. Um, so how uh, big is it, you know, financially? Uh, what's the size of the organisation? So as a group, it would be about 700 million um, turnover. Um, and it's got aspirations to, um, you know, grow significantly over the next three to five years. And um, it 
wants to absolutely at the heart of it retain its family culture so you spoke earlier in the beginning about mm. family dynamics and there is absolutely the opportunity to take a very 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 long-term view of what it is doing um, so tell me about the advantages and the disadvantages you know uh, from your perspective because i think in like in most things in life there's things that it helps you do long term you know, there's the thing about the culture, there's the thing about growth and development of people, but there's also this bit about, you know, sometimes decision-making gets a little bit more difficult because you end up with a shareholder sitting in the business. So tell us about just some of that. Um, so the the, um, the first part of it, which is about all of the positive um, uh, culture dynamics, and a feeling of a family business and taking care of its people is absolutely... So tell me, so how do they, you know, so you've been in lots of different businesses. Yeah. So tell me, you've been in two months. Tell me how how it feels different. So tell me, you know, culturally, they care for their people. Well, not being horrible, but Wincanton yeah. and Royal Mail, yeah. and they care for their people as well. So what's the difference? How would you describe the difference? Um, I think it's to do with the visibility of the different members of the family within the business and it's okay. about visibility and the point at which you can touch and feel somebody that is leading the organisation and setting the heartbeat of the organisation. So it's about proximity um, and visibility of that leadership which you know is a very powerful thing in a smaller um, organisation. Sure. Um, how it actually demonstrates it, um, I mean, um, uh, simple things um, through, you know, celebrations. Um, I, I know a lot of big companies um, have these in place, but it's a little bit more personal where we can bring people together, yeah. you know, whether it be at um, uh, a huge event at Christmas or um, in the 50-year um, celebrations that we're having this year. Um uh, and I think it's just more in the in the day to day, the freedom that the line managers have, okay. and the autonomy is is um, much greater. Okay, so uh, that, that that that's the good news bit, and, and and some of the downsides, or some not the downsides, but just some of the challenges that that throws up in terms of leadership and management. I think um, that people would say that sometimes um, decision making in the past could have been a bit clearer about who was making uh, the decisions. Um, uh, absolutely. But um, as I said, it's um, transitioning now um, into some very clear organisational um, uh, sort of com committees and forums where um, decision making, you know, is is made by the executive leadership team um, and endorsed by the executive board. One of the things I really wanted to pick up with you, Julie, was your role as a, a female leader. Now, you've worked in lots of sort of male industries, you know, logistics is most probably construction, uh, royal mail. Perhaps apart from retail early in your career, you're quite, you know, you're working in male-dominated industries. I suspect on the management and leadership teams, you might be one of two, perhaps three females, but sure in a minority. So tell us a bit, because I think there'll be lots of HR um, uh, women that uh, aspire to a leadership role. So tell us a bit about how you've established your credibility, how you've uh, developed those relationships, how you've brought um, some of your personal strengths to play within those environments. So just tell us a bit about some of the tactics, some of the things that you've done. I'll happily do that. I must most make one comment first of all, though, because I think what's really important for all organisations is that they have at that top table diversity of thought. Now, diversity of thought doesn't just have to come from a, a gender um, balance. It can come in many, many different ways um, and in, in different forms. So uh, I think that's really important to understand that uh, diversity is broader than that. But yes, you're absolutely right. I, I, I've been um, maybe one or, or two in a room um, fairly frequently. Um, and I was very lucky in my early part of my career that um, my, the training that I had through Sainsbury's was, you know, a very commercial environment. So what's very important for HR people and for anybody in a business that might be um, in a minority is really understand the dynamics of the business. Um, because that is the heart of why you are there and driving decision making and contributing to the strategy for the future. Um, that said, then you've got to make sure that you've got a voice, that you've got an opinion on the topics that are not just in your own area, but outside of your own remit. 
um, and um, that you can deliver on those promises. Yeah, I think the deliver on your promises is absolutely. So tell us a bit about that commercial bit, you know, and, and understanding the business. Because I, I, I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to HR people and I often, when I'm going in, uh, sometimes to talk to HR directors or even to talk to sort of HR staff at quite a senior level and I ask them about some of the drivers, some of the commercial drivers in their organisation, quite often you get quite woolly answers and I go, it just doesn't feel right to me. You know, if you're going to influence the strategy and what people we need and what talent and how we organise it and how we lead it, that this whole thing about, you know, we're a bit woolly, we're just doing the HR bit. And and I think you're absolutely right. You have to be able to participate in the debate around what the business does and what it doesn't do. Mm. So how did you develop that? How did you get, you got it a bit at Sainsbury's. Yeah. And then so when you arrive in a business like the current one, how do you really get an understanding of what the core drivers are? You really have to get out and see the business, um, you know, so spending time out there on the sites, um, looking at how the business goes about winning new business. How does that whole process work? What's really important? How are the decisions, you know, made, yeah, sure. um, won or lost? Um and then thinking about being one step ahead and what's going to be needed in the future. So what are the innovations in technology coming down? Are you able to demonstrate your ability to deliver on those? And I think you've got to have one or two very brave moves. Um, it's the whole risk um, appetite as well. You know, um, Carey's is a smaller, more agile organisation yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's really able to take some brave moves. Okay, so we're going to take a short break. So we'll be back in a couple of moments uh, for the second part of this HR Futures podcast brought to you by Expedite HR. And we're going to spend a bit more time with Julian. We're going to talk a bit about what HR should focus on, the future of HR, and then a little bit towards the end about what uh, Julie, the woman, does outside of work. So we'll be back in a couple of moments. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs? Or increase your agility and capacity? There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and managed services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple, freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com. So welcome back to the second part of HR Futures podcast. And with me today is Julie Welsh, who's the Chief People Officer at Carey's, which is a big civil engineering business family owned. So you must have already heard about that in the first part of this podcast. So, Julie, one of the things I'm really interested in is how you, as an HR director, decide what to focus on and what not to. Now, that may mean you still have to do pay people, train people, hire people, because we have to do that day in, day out. But you've always got a choice about what to major on. You know, how, how is HR going to make a major impact on business performance, business strategy? So can you tell us how you go about that, what you've done? Uh, and you may want to give us some examples, perhaps of Wing Canton, I suspect, to be the classic example of where you've made choices about, let's do that because that's going to make the most impact and perhaps let's down dial that. Sure. I mean, the absolute first thing that you have to do is really understand and make sure that the business has its business vision, mission and values and strategy in place. Because what's driving the organisation in terms of what it wants to be great at, you know, what's driving its passion and what's driving its economic engine is at the heart of what HR then has to focus on to get the business to be successful. So take it as read that that is, you know, really, That's really in clear. Place. That's and in place. And if it is in place. And if it is in place, we've got a key role um, working with that executive leadership team, with its stakeholders and shareholders in getting that crystal clear. Because okay. that's absolutely, you know, vital. So once that's in place, then as an HR director, you've got to be about um, bringing all of the skills and experience that you've got, but listening very carefully to what's going to make 
first company most successful in the first one to three years, say, mm. of you arriving at that place. So um, uh, what are the dynamics? Uh, what are the market dynamics going on? Is there a big um, uh, play on governance and regulation? Um, yeah. Is there a big um, uh, change in um, particular skills that are required in the business? So you've actually absolutely got to ensure that it is um, uh, what you're delivering in terms of HR. Um, and I would say you've got to focus on a big three or five things. Yeah, it's very yeah. easy to have a, a list of 20 different items, but you've got to focus on the big ticket items. And, and in some ways, some of these themes are going to be very similar and familiar in lots of different organisations. You know, there's there's always one about talent and the acquiring of skills and relevant skills and um, uh, mm. retaining, you know, real key talent. There's always going to be something around the dynamics of pay and rewards and, um, um, but for me, I think the big things are around motivation and engagement. That's something that I've loved in my career um, uh, to date around what is it that um, you can give skills for line managers to motivate and engage their right. people. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit because I'm fascinated by that as well. Because I, I think if you think about HR, we sort of are the experts, we create policies, procedures, we advise, we guide, we help, but we don't manage the people. The line managers manage the people. And, and and for me, you know, that's one of the big differentiators. You know, I always say HR's two big things, hire the right people and get great frontline managers and you're mm. 70, 80% there. Yeah. You know, there's loads of other things we can do, but those are really important. And so tell us a bit about that motivating engagement and how you've developed line managers that perhaps don't always see that as their natural call and they're often you know, been hired because they're good at getting stuff done and they're great at managing tasks or opportunities or whatever it may be, or salespeople are great at selling or marketers that are passionate about brands and you go to them, well, we've got to actually engage, manage, motivate your people. So tell us some work you've done in that area and things that you, you really think where it's made a difference. I mean, in helping managers be, you know, even better managers of the future, I think there are a number of um, sort of uh, steps of helping them on that journey that you've got to go through. Um, and I think the first one really is getting them to understand a little bit more about themselves. So understanding their self, what are their own um, uh, strengths and areas that they can, you know, leverage their strengths in terms of their leadership and where do they have development needs? How open do you think managers and leaders are? Because normally, you know, they've... They've sort of been promoted. They're quite good at what they do. And then you come along and go, you, know, you need to understand yourself. And I think they look at it as like, and I, I understand exactly where you're coming from because I'm exactly in the same place. But, you know, they're quite sceptical. So how do you go, you know, you need to do an assessment. We're going to take you through some kind of development process. And they're thinking, well, you know, in their mind, in their own internal, oh, I'm, always, I'm sort of quite good at this. Why, why have I got to learn about what drives me and what motivates me? So how do you get people to participate and engage in that? Process. I think it's easier um, when uh, they see that it's being done from the top as well. Yeah, so yeah, if yeah. you see, you know, that you've got in your senior leadership team, the chief executive and all of his direct reports doing a very similar thing, asking for feedback, uh, sending out 360, how is it that I'm perceived doing this and this? And then you've got that permission to sort of appear a little bit more vulnerable. Um, so I think actually role modelling it is really, really important. The whole question of vulnerability and and uh, understanding that you can't be great at everything. You know, if you translate it to sport and you think about the different um, positions people will play on a football pitch, you can't be a complete utility player in every single position and get to the top. You've absolutely got to hone in on one or two things that you can do brilliantly. And the same, you know, for managers. So uh, in Carys, we spend a bit of time um, asking people to think about their unique contribution. And what we mean by that is what is it that really makes them um, the person that they are, which is different yeah. from the manager that stood next to them. And then how can you build a team with a number of different people in it? Um, so going back to managers, uh, creating an environment where they are seen um, uh, that's the right thing to do and, you know, having an academy and access to where they can get support. You're right, HR does play a key role in the coaching element. So, you know, have you mm. got some great coaches? 
um, not always just in HR, but in other no, functions no, as well. Absolutely. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to work in organisations, Royal Mail included, where they did a big programme um, of um, uh, making sure they were great coaches, you know, in the line and um, across different functions. Um, and once they've got a bit of an understanding about themselves, then they've got to think about how it is that they, you know, lead where did, others. Where did this work best in your career? Is it Wincanton again? Do you think that you got hold of some managers and took them through a journey and they were, you know, they were... At the end, they were really fantastic people managers because I'm always interested in the real practical stuff. You know, when did it work? Because sometimes it doesn't, does it? Uh, we did have some brilliant examples in uh, Wincanton. And as a leadership team, we went through a program uh, ourselves as an executive function first um, uh, over the course of 18 months, um, you know, where we would take ourselves away and really... Um, uh, understand exactly what it was that we wanted out of work and life so it was much broader than just the work environment no, it was about what made us tick um, and then having a great learning and development head of learning and development that could help translate some of the programs that we needed in the business sounds good I mean I, I'm you know I, I was talking at a conference the other day to HR people and I said so tell me about seminal work on motivation anyone throughout the name of and I was looking for Dad Pink's book on um, drive, on motivation, 2009. Fantastic study about what motivates people. Four or five hands in a room of uh, 200 people. You know, I think one of the guys, and I'm going to ask you questions about HR's failing. I just, we need to keep learning and developing and, and reading and attending conferences and talking and trying different stuff. So let me ask you what you think the biggest failing of HR is. You know, what is it that's going to really help our profession in the next 10 years? Um, and discount what I've said. What's your view about what HR needs to be doing, perhaps differently, the people that come into it, the skills we give them, the training we give them, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. But I think what we do is important. I'm not sure we're as good at it as we could be. I'll just come back to something that you said in the in the first part of um, uh, uh, that um, uh, section, if you don't mind, and that was about the importance of continuing to um, uh, learn. Because I absolutely agree, but I think what's fundamental for a student, whatever stage of life they're at, so uh, whether this is, you know, a, a student in their 20s or a student like me in their 50s, you know, because I'm still learning, is about the actual uh, learning how to learn. So it's not just about acquiring knowledge. You know, what we've actually got to do is teach people how to learn because the most important thing for the future is about adaptability and planning for the unknown. So what we've got to do is make sure that we've all got these skills that are actually, you know, really understanding mm. how it is that you can learn and then apply that learning. So um, going back to what you actually asked me oh, about. HR's biggest failing. What is it and how can we tackle it? Um, I think HR, if we listen to some of the criticism from um, other functions in the business, um, might be that sometimes um, are we really working on the most relevant thing for that business there and then? Or are we too much in things that might be seen as nice for HR to deliver in terms of, you know, a particular new um, process, but not really fundamentally driving the behaviours in the business that we want to adapt. And I think the second thing is probably about, are we making ourselves easy to do business with? Yeah. You know, are we making some of these things digital? Are we making them um, one touch? Are we able to um, allow these line managers that we've got to help be great line managers sort of have a self um, access, self-serve um, ability to find the answers for themselves next time as well? So I'm going to ask you a question, which I think I sort of already know the answer to because um, of your daughter. So if a, a person comes to you, a young person goes, I'm, I'm thinking of having a career in HR, what would you say? Um, I would encourage it. I would say it's an absolutely fantastic um, uh, uh, profession to um, be in. Um, you can go through many different types of organisations, um, uh, whether they be regulated, unregulated, um, centralised, decentralised, international, domestic, all kinds of different sectors. It's really transferable. Um, but what I would also encourage is something that perhaps I didn't do enough of, and that is not always stay in the function. Think about a moment in time where you can step out of the function and be in a different function for a while. Um, and if that's not possible, how can you be part of a big cross 
um, uh, project governance project somewhere so that you're really working with um, lots of other different functions. But um, I would say do it, but make sure that you get out of it for a short while yeah, before I mean, coming back into it. I think it. one of the things that HR people need to do is you need to manage teams and people. And quite yeah. often you get quite a long way in your career before you start doing that. And actually we're advising other people about how to manage and yeah. stuff. Um, okay, so thanks for that. Um, let's just think about the profession over the next few years then. You know, we hear a lot about... AI and machine learning and robotics and algorithms and internet things and you know there's no doubt that there's going to be greater change driven by technology in our society and within our businesses so what do you think this means for for HR what do we need to be doing to prepare not just well ourselves but also our businesses for potentially what's just coming over the hill I think firstly, you know, that thing about there's going to be um, so many different roles that we've not heard of yet and opportunities. So that um, uh, something I was talking about earlier, which is the ability to learn so that we have got the adaptability and the ability to plan for unknown unknowns. And we, we don't know what some of the outcomes are going to be. Um, and I think we should be happy to embrace that we can't predict everything. So um, and there will human nature um, are, by its very um, uh, core is sometimes for good and sometimes for evil. So there will be certainly <laughs> some humans that will adapt some of this AI learning for, yeah. for the evil, you know, uh, um, but also for some greater good. So collaborative, you know, bringing communities together, um, more sustainability. You think of the whole environmental um, uh, um, yeah. debates that are going on at the moment. So... Um, it will undoubtedly mean there will be some efficiencies in some areas, and, and that's fine. History has taught us that, that that's okay as well, um, that that has taken place. And there will be some new ways in which we need to adapt um, and draw insights from this AI. And I think that's where that human interaction, you know, is still always going to play a part. Okay, thank you for, for that. I, I want to bring it back to you a bit more now. So as we sort of come towards the end of the podcast, I suppose the first question is this is, you know, uh, as you say, uh, you're in your 50s, you've got a, a fantastic role ahead of you at Carey's. You've only just arrived. So um, what do you think the future holds for you? You know, what do you see? Is this your last big HR role or are you going to go off and do the non-exec stuff? Are you, you know, I mean, obviously you're going to, you're going to be there for a few years, but you have to start thinking about the future and what comes next. You know, just be interested in where you go next or what you're thinking about. Um, so I'm, uh, you know, really excited to make all the change and do the growth journey at Carey's and hopefully that will be for quite some years. Um, uh, further down the line, then I certainly will get involved in lots of different types of projects, um, whether that be a little bit more of acting as a consultant to some other small organisations, um, whether that be giving back something in terms of uh, coaching um, or, you know, judging HR awards and speaking um, a little bit more. Um, then I keep my mind very open. In terms of um, uh, non-executive roles, um, that's not something that I'm actively looking at at the moment. Um, it would be more in a sort of advisory capacity. Mm. You want to get more hands-on. You yes, don't want to be on remuneration committees and no, nomination committees. I like the hands-on. Yeah, okay. So tell us now a bit about what you do outside of work because, again, one of the things I'm really interested to do in these podcasts is we're all humans, you know, um, yeah, we may have big jobs, we may be HR directors or HR leaders, but, you know, there's other stuff that turns us on and gets us out of bed and gets us to enjoy life. So just tell us about some of the things that you're passionate about outside of HR and business. Okay, so um, sport has always been something that I've loved to um, uh, be involved in. Um, so uh, uh, earlier this week, I went back to a, a netball game. I was a uh, 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 standing in for somebody that uh, couldn't play, but that was brilliant. So I tried. So you played? I played. Yes. Yeah. How was that? Uh, we won. That's always good. That was good. How um, did you feel? Did you did you just get back straight into the groove? 
Uh, or did you find, oh, I'm, I'm a bit rusty. I think the ability to know where to get space um, uh, is absolutely always there in the brain. The speed at which you get into that space may uh, be something that uh, was slightly different to 20 years ago. Um, but uh, so I, I enjoy um, uh, some sort of um, weight training, small sessions um, a few times a week. Personal training, I have, gym. I have, but it's small group work. It's small oh, group okay. work. I'm doing hip training sessions. So that's great fun. And I enjoy going watching live sport. So um, it's the Cricket World Cup this year. So we're off to see a few uh, uh, cricket games. Cool. We normally do Wimbledon. Um, and uh, and it's um, my husband uh, and I have been married 25 years this year. So we're off to New York shortly. So I hope to do a bit more travelling as more well. Travelling. You well, I suppose your jobs have been international in, in different phases in your yes. career. Yes. Um, and, and do you enjoy traveling for, for work? Yes, I absolutely, you know, that learning about um, uh, how seemingly under one umbrella of the same company, things culturally can be very different yeah, in different absolutely. parts. Um, and my other passion is really um, reading. You know, it goes back probably to my time of, um, of studying English. So, um, so whether, it, whether it be... I, I mean, going back way in the day, you know, I was the one that had all the Mayor Angelou books and loved okay. some of that insights. Um, what I'm currently reading um, is the Neapolitan trilogy of, um, of novels. I, uh, so who wrote those? Those are by um, Eleanor Ferrante. Good. Very good. I recommend so tell, them. So tell, tell me about a little bit about them. Well, uh, the first one that I'm only halfway through at the moment okay. is um, entitled My Brilliant Friend. And I think I should just leave it there as a bit of a hanger that it's about a great friendship between two young girls and the journey that that takes them on in life. Oh, I like the sound of that. Oh, I'm always looking for, I'm, I'm an avid reader, I'm always looking for interesting. So is it predominantly novels um, or do you read non-fiction as well? No, I do these? read non-fiction. Um, uh, you know, I'm uh, fascinated, you know, um, things like um, Simon Sinek and Marcus Buckingham, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, some of those insights that maybe were along the lines of some of the uh, business, yeah. but also anthropology you know yeah. so so understanding people yes and what, what makes them tick um, and, and and what about music and theater uh, I love theatre. I was there last week um, seeing a musical, the Tina Turner musical. It's great, isn't it? Fantastic. I really yeah, loved it. Wonderful voice. Oh, yeah, um, she was. Yeah, I was, I was and of course, away. it's a story of a of amazing yeah. life. Yeah. Um, so not always musicals, though. I enjoy the theatre, um, but I also really like boutique cinemas as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, yeah. Last great film you saw? Last thing that you think? Well, oh, I, I could go back and watch that again. Um. What I've currently really enjoyed um, uh, watching is more a, a, a BBC drama, actually, okay. rather than at the cinema. So um, that's Line of Duty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that's the thing that comes to mind first when you it's ask that question. quite shocking the end of the half episode Absolutely. last week, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, it's great to hear a bit about uh, what you do outside of work, because I think, you know, you know, it's important to understand people as people. So thank you for spending the time with us, Julie. We think you, I think this is going to be a great podcast. I think people are going to get lots of value from it and all the best in your new career. And I'm sure that we'll revisit that perhaps at another time. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 